Thank you so much, uh, choir, praise team. Uh, lately, the worship, uh, how the music and everything is really integrated, it's, it's, it's wonderful. It f that's basically like the sermon, all the praise songs and, uh, and, the pra and the choir, the special music. And music is meant to be done in person, isn't it? Uh, it's so different from watching on a screen than hearing it and seeing it in person. So uh, thank you, and this is uh, so great. Uh, I mean, a lot of you are masked up, and a lot of you college kids have really evolved. Is that the good way to put it? Over the last uh, a year or so, but it's so wonderful to see uh, everybody. It's kind of almost surreal, isn't it? I don't know. It's kind of felt like is that day ever going to come when we're together? I'm sure many of you are excited to see uh, one another uh, and whatnot. But I'm sure there's also kind of a sense of uh, nervousness or um, anxiousness. Because all of you, I mean, no one stays the same. You've all been on your own journeys over the last 15 months. We all change. We all evolve. So what will it be like? All these kind of mixed feelings are signs of you know, life slowly emerging again. And uh, as we know, the driver of this return to life has been uh, kind of these miracle vaccines that have worked so far, so far, worked better than people had expected, right? But little known to much of the world is the story behind one of the pioneers of these vaccines. Uh, so one of these pioneers, her name is Catalin Carrico. Have you heard of her? She, uh, she was born in a small village in Hungary back in 1955. Uh, she grew up with uh, no electricity or running water. Her father was a butcher, so she was like a country village girl. But somehow in school, like the science bug hit her, so she studied that and uh, went into university and majored in biology, and then went to grad school. And then when she got to grad school, she, one day she learned about this uh, molecule that scientists had just discovered. It was called messenger RNA. And what this molecule could do for her was a revolutionary insight that had infinite possibilities. I'm not a science guy, so I don't have any idea about all the science. But what we do know is that at the young age of 22, which is kind of around a lot of your ages, she was gripped by the possibilities of this little molecule. I mean, the thing is, at this time, it was the late 1970s. It was merely a theory. And uh, most scientists at the time considered it kind of a joke or a fantasy. And in Hungary especially, there were no tools to even try to make this uh, thing molecule. But she was possessed by this idea and utterly convinced of it. So she began, uh, you know, work trying to make an RNA, mRNA molecule, but then her lab ran out of money, and she was out of a job. And right then, she realized there's no future for her in Hungary. So kind of like Jesus in today's passage, she packed up and left for the United States with her husband, two-year-old daughter, and 900 pounds of Hungarian currency that she snuck into her daughter's teddy bear because uh, they weren't allowed to take money out of the country. So with that, she came, and in the United States, she kind of toiled away initially in low-level labs. No one took her seriously or paid attention to her. I mean, she kept applying for research grants, but kept getting rejected over and over. This one grant in particular, there were seven applicants, and they ended up funding six of them. 
guess whose was the one that was rejected? That's right, it was hers. And because she was unable to find funding, she was unable to do the research that would get her published in major journals. And then because of that, you know the rule for uh, university tenureship is publish or perish. No publish, no tenure. So no one would really talk to her or entertain her because she had no grants, no publications, no tenure, and no reputation. But she was unwavering in her commitment to this science. And one day, many years later, 1998, she kind of caught a lucky break. She was photocopying something at the photocopier. She said later on that starting 2002, she never used a photocopier. But it was still early enough. She was using a photocopier, and this guy came up beside her, and they struck up a conversation. Uh, and he happened to be this immunologist. His name was Dr. Drew Weissman. And he worked for this like, pretty unknown doctor at the time, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Have you guys heard of him? <laughs> He's famous now, right? Um, and, uh, and so she was telling him all about her work and uh, research and mRNA and what she's trying to do. And uh, he was intrigued. So he brought her in to work at his lab. And they started conducting experiments. And after many trials and errors, they were at last able to make the mRNA do what they wanted to do, you know, in these little animals and stuff. It was a breakthrough. But that breakthrough led to even more setbacks. Because no one was interested in what they had discovered. No one invested in this company they created. They received no grants again. No journals would publish their research. I mean, for them, it was this amazing discovery. But the world just shrugged. Because no one really understood what the significance of this molecule was. And no one really cared. But still, she did not give up. And one day in 2013, she was giving this lecture uh, on uh, messenger RNA when this man in the audience just kind of uh, came up to her. This guy was, uh, he was the founder of a small little startup called BioNTech. And then immediately, he understood her vision and what she wanted to do with this. He offered her a job right there and then, and she accepted right on the spot too. So they started to work, and soon after, BioNTech partnered with uh, this big pharmaceutical company named uh, Pfizer. You guys heard of it? That's right. So in 2018, they began to develop an mRNA-based influenza vaccine. And so she was working on that, working, working, and then 2020 rolled around, and uh, we know what happened. At first, uh, even Carico didn't really think much about COVID because it seemed like such a faraway thing off in China. You guys remember that? We, we all used to read the news, but okay, that's over there. But we know how the story goes after that. But the thing is, the mRNA work they had been doing up to this point, it was well advanced. They were ready to roll it out with uh, uh, influenza. So they were in a unique position to qu quickly shift gears and develop this COVID vaccine. I mean, it's crazy. Eh? Everything she had worked on, all that she had endured, led to this moment. This odd little thing that no one understood, that they had been toiling on for years in obscurity, might suddenly change the world. I mean, you know, we, a lot of us know a normal vaccine takes a long time to develop. 
But they were up and ready to go because they had been working on it for so long. And that's how they rolled it out quickly. And Caitlin, Catalin Carrico had complete confidence in the science behind her work and this vaccine. And then the trials would soon prove this true, right? A normal vaccine is considered effective if it has like 60% efficacy. I mean, this one exceeded 90%, like 95, 96%, beyond anyone's wildest expectations. And then the rest is history, and kind of here we are today. Right? When she was asked about her journey, you know, the decades, literally decades of ordeals, setbacks, and dark moments, uh, no one, when no one believed in her, this is what she said. I never doubted it would work. Right? I never doubted it would work. I mean, her unwavering belief in the power of messenger RNA to make a difference in this world kept her going. Now, don't get me wrong, and there's a lot of kind of debate about the sciences. I'm not about that, okay? I'm focusing on her unwavering belief that kept her going, right? As I heard this story soon after I chose the passage for uh, today's sermon, and immediately those two, the passage and the story connected in my mind. And as I reflected further, I came to realize this. You know, where our confidence comes from determines the shape of our lives. Right? Where our confidence comes from determines the shape of our lives. Catalin Carrico's confidence was in the power and potential of messenger RNA. And so that confidence determined the shape of her life. I mean, she didn't have the pedigree, connections, reputation, and resources that you need in scientific research. But it was her confidence in this little molecule that kept her going and shaped her life over decades. I mean, never would she have imagined that this confidence would lead to this vaccine on a global scale. That was never her goal either. She simply believed that this has the possibility to make some difference. Her confidence in it determined the shape of her life. Where does your confidence come from? For all of us and for our college students, this may be the most important question you need to ask yourself because your answer to this will determine the shape of your life. And I'm not talking about what you think the answer is on the surface or in your mind, but what it really is when you dig deeper and honestly examine yourself. I don't know, ask, does it come from like your appearance or looking good uh, for others? Does it come from financial security and control? Does it come from your family and uh, being a good parent? Wherever your true confidence comes from, that will really determine the shape of your life. Or do you maybe simply lack confidence in anything? I mean, I know that during this pandemic, uh, it became clear to a lot of young people that 
they don't have much confidence in anything. I mean, that too determines the shape of your life in the form of kind of being aimless and having no motivation. Because I heard that so many times, it's no motivation, no motivation. Right? Where your confidence comes from determines the shape of your life. St. Paul <clears throat> once found great confidence in his pedigree as a Jew uh, and things that he refers to as the flesh. That's what he said. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. I mean, as to the law, a Pharisee, like the ultimate uh, embodiment of the law. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Any deviance from the law, I'm going I'm to make sure they're set in line. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Okay. He found his confidence in his birth and living out the way of a good Jew. And that shaped the course of his early life. He really thought he was living a good life. But on the road to Damascus, something changed. He met Christ. He was blinded for three days. And then scales fell from his eyes. And it's like he could see. He saw that the confidence, the, the things he had confidence in, were so small and insignificant. And so this is his confession. Yet, whatever gains I had, the things I had confidence in, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish. You know, in Greek, this word, it means like refuse, dung, okay? In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. All these things he had once found confidence in paled in comparison to the greater reality he found in Christ. His newfound confidence in Jesus determined the shape of his life to come. My friends, this is what a real encounter with Christ looks like. You know, it makes you really examine the things that are kind of guiding your life and asking, you know, is this really how I want my life to be shaped? That's what a true encounter with Christ does. It's not just merely some, like, emotional experience. It's a real existential experience. You know, St. Paul's influence, it's, it's the most enduring one in our Christian history and faith. His letters are full of, when we study it, they're full of insight and understanding into human nature. And he reveals what it looks like. I mean, he, the issues he dealt with are like a bunch of different people from different backgrounds coming together, trying to make a community of it. And they got into conflict and tension. So he's trying to illustrate what it means to be in Christ, what it means to, for us to kind of work with our differences and coexist in love and harmony. Learn to listen to one another, bear with one another, right? These are things that are all over his letters. 
And his faith was an inspiration for every generation of believers. But you know what? He, was, he wasn't an obvious choice to be such a trailblazer. Because <clears throat> he was an outsider to the early community of Jesus' followers. Right? He wasn't an original follower of Jesus uh, while he was alive. He never even knew him. He was not one of these revered 12 disciples. I mean, all the early followers of Jesus were from Galilee. I mean, they're kind of, kind of rough and tough fishermen, you know? Paul, he was like the city guy from uh, the Greek-speaking uh, city of Tarsus in Asia. You know, the, the, all the disciples and followers, they spoke Aramaic, because that's what they spoke in Galilee. Uh, but he didn't. He spoke like Greek and Hebrew and whatnot. Um, and they were based in Jerusalem. He, he was from elsewhere. And most of all, I mean, he had been a fierce persecutor of this very community. You know, this is something that would mark him for the rest of his life. Aren't you the guy that was, like, kind of giving us a real hard time? But nonetheless, Paul carried on, shaped by his confidence in Christ. And he endured a lot of things, persecution, suffering, rejection, undermining from others for the sake of this good news that he had found in Christ. So you know what? Something that we learned from Catalin Carico and St. Paul is that they were both outsiders. There was no reason for them to succeed, but yet they did. And it was their faith or confidence in what they believed that drove them to it. You know, in, this, in our life, we exert so much energy trying to be insiders, you know, and, and that's the safe path. A lot of you are in college now, so you can develop the right credentials and pedigree to make you an insider somewhere. And yeah, these are important things in life. But what's most important is finding a source of confidence that is lasting and gives shape to your life in a meaningful way. Doesn't necessarily lead to an easy life, as we saw with St. Paul and Carico and even Jesus, but it's a good and meaningful one. I think the most important thing during these years is not just getting good marks and a good career, as important as they are, but discovering what you will place your confidence in. Because that will really determine the shape of your life. Careers will come and go, but what you stake your life on should not. Jesus called his disciples in this passage and sent them out. But the manner in which he sent them out is uh, very similar to the stories that we've heard today. That's what he said. He ordered them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. He said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. They were not sent out with great preparation or provisions. And going out in this manner left them very vulnerable. You know, Jesus was training his disciples to have confidence in him. He gave them the authority to carry out the, the ministry he had started. They were to trust and have confidence in that authority. They were to have confidence in Jesus. 
the Gospels reveal as they go along that they really actually didn't have confidence in Jesus. When the going got, got tough, they bounced. They, they ran away. I realized that they didn't have confidence in Jesus because they didn't really know him. And they thought they did, right? Uh, but the Jesus they thought they knew was really actually their own projection of who they wanted Jesus to be. They had their own ideas of what a Messiah should be, and they projected that onto him. It's kind of like, you know, you go on a date with someone, and uh, uh, you end up doing all the talking, and then you're like, oh, that, that person's great. Okay? It's kind of like that was me and Deb, I guess. On our, on our first real date, where we hung out for a long period of time, we went to this uh, lounge and uh, ordered, ordered a beer each, and then uh, started talking. And by the end, I realized she had been nursing that one beer the whole night. And uh, I was on my like, second or third, and I, I had been just talking the whole time. But then for me, I was like, this is great. I, I like this girl. Right? But I, I had no clue who she was. I liked her because she listened to me, my, my, my jabbering. Right? It's kind of like that. So when things unfold differently, though, than what we expect that's when you really start to get to, it's a test. You get to know that person, right? I mean, only after Jesus' death did they come to know who he was. It was the resurrection opened their eyes to who he really was. And then once they actually got to know Jesus, they developed confidence in him. They remembered these last words of Jesus and held on to this. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. They had confidence in these words. And so they became courageous pillars of the faith community and the church was built on that. So where is your confidence? You know, as those who come to church and profess to be followers of Jesus, is your confidence in Jesus. But with that question, thinking back on my time as a high sea pastor, when a lot of you guys were uh, in the youth group, I realized actually I, I didn't focus, if I'm honest, too deeply on Jesus. And I talked a lot about God and God's love and uh, here and there about Jesus' teachings, but I realized I didn't really go too deeply into Jesus himself. I didn't teach you guys too deeply about Jesus. And I realize now that I was dealing with a lot of my own baggage when it comes to Jesus. Because you know what? For a long time as a young adult, uh, I was very conflicted and uncertain about who Jesus is for me. Because, I don't know, like, there's, I won't go into everything, but I felt that the Jesus who was preached and taught in church was just too simplistic. And that this Jesus that was preached couldn't help me work through my real-life struggles in this complicated and messy world. I didn't like how people used the name of Jesus so like brashly and confidently and so simplistically. It just it didn't jive with me. And then I was also angry at how in the name of Jesus, you know, European and North American Christians would conquer people and dominate them with violence and inflict such great suffering. 
right? We see this clearly nowadays as horrific evidence of what happened in our church-run residential schools continues to surface. I mean, this was done in the name of Jesus. So, I mean, I realize we need to be very humble about how we use the name of Jesus. Because like I said, I, I don't think most of us really know Jesus. I mean, but still, I realize uh, in hindsight that by not focusing centrally on Jesus, I missed a key, maybe the key entry point to God. Because I remember many of you in high C uh, struggled and I think still struggle to understand a God you can't see or feel. And so kind of God is just kind of this abstract concept. And then there's even doubt if God is even real, right? But I realize what people do understand is human relationships. I mean, that's concrete. So by focusing on Jesus as the human manifestation of God here on earth, I think that could have been a more concrete entry point to knowing God. Right? Because to know Jesus, I think, is to know God. To understand Jesus deeply is to understand who God is. And so, you know, we all have like little laments and regrets, and that's one of mine. But, uh, and pastors and ministers, we are people too. We all have our own baggage, and even when it comes to faith. And so I too have been on my own journey, and uh, I'm just thankful, you know, for God's grace. You know, uh, St. Paul said, uh, it's because Christ has made me his own, that he has confidence in him, and I can really understand what he was saying. It's through grace that God has made me his own that I too can carry on. But the last few years, and I think especially over the pandemic for me, they've been a turning point in who Jesus is to me. And much of this journey has come while struggling through pandemic and delving deeper into the scripture, the Bible. Right? In church, we studied the Gospel of Mark for the past year. And through this study and my own preparation and, and grappling with what I was going through in my life, my understanding, appreciation, and love for Jesus has grown. And I see now that Jesus is not a simplistic little thing. I see that Jesus has deep and enormous implications for my life and for this world. Very profound implications. It's not just some happy, simple thing to be a follower of Jesus. And I, real, I realized that to really know Jesus, we have to engage our whole self with our lived experience with the Jesus who is made known to us in the Bible. I realized so much about Jesus is our opinions and perceptions and thoughts that circulate around. But no, the place we get to know Jesus is in the scripture that we have been gifted with. These are the documents closest to the life of Jesus. But I mean, I know, reading the Bible, it's not an easy process. There's a, a lot of uh, archaic and old language to get through. We have to understand the context that they are written in to, to know and uncover what the authors are saying. But not only that, I mean, to really know Jesus, we have to be willing to honestly bring uh, ourselves and engage with that text. If you're just coming with your own preset ideas about life and yourself, it's, not, it's only going to reinforce, like I said, your own perceptions. No, you have to come willing to be honest about who you are and then encounter what the text is saying. 
I mean, that's what we call hermeneutical Bible study. Only in that honest engagement, then, will we start to get insight. Oh, I realize this is what I've been staking my life on. I didn't, I maybe kind of knew it, but I didn't really know it. That kind of insight and revelation, right? And so then what? And then as you engage, you start to perceive and feel, oh, my goodness. Wow, this is what grace is all about. This is what God is, always calling me and beckoning me, even though I've been so far off here. God's faithfulness in church. I mean, these are the kinds of things that come out as we engage deeply in the text and uh, with our lives. And that's why at our church, uh, the study of the Bible is really at the center of what we do. That's what we, we're not that good at many other things, you know. Uh, we're not, we don't, we don't have good small groups. We don't have good programs and structures, right? But what we have is, Study of our Bible. And it's not a solo journey. There's, there's places for us to read on our own, but there needs to be a community with which we grapple and, and struggle with and seek to understand. So I hope that uh, for our college group uh, and everyone else in this church, that we can uh, really be honest and faithful participants in these Bible studies because that is how we come to know Christ. Knowing Jesus is a lifelong journey. I mean, I consider myself still at the early stages of it. Right? It's like getting to know your spouse or a friend. It's a never-ending journey. You continue to get to know them, right? But I've tasted, tasted what a life in and with Jesus is like. And I can confess that there's nothing like it. It's a hidden treasure, more valuable than anything else in the world. And that gives me great confidence. And this was St. Paul's discovery and declaration too. That's what he says. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That is my goal. And I hope that is the goal for all of us too. You know, Jesus, as we uh, emerge from this pandemic, I'm thinking a lot, you know, and Jesus ministered in a con context that was full of, beset with hardship, suffering, and difficulty. You know, the circumstances were so crushing that uh, people became possessed with demons. They developed debilitating physical deformities and ailments. And, uh, uh, you know, these things don't just happen out of nowhere. It takes crushing circumstances to make people crazy, right? And then there's a breakdown in social cohesion because life became so hard. Jesus came with power to show people that they were not mere victims of their circumstances. Right? He came to love, heal, serve, and liberate. He came to show that there is another way to live. This is all in our scriptures. As we emerge from this pandemic, we emerge into a world that needs love, healing, hope, and restoration. Right? We need that healing love and power of Jesus. 
Just like today's passage, Jesus calls us to carry on what he began while he was on earth. And like he said, he's with us now through the Holy Spirit that empowers us and leads us. Even if you can't feel God, my friends, even if you don't think God is around, the Spirit is there. Okay? The Spirit is there. So for my beloved college students, you know, our idea of Jesus might be colored by perceptions and opinions of others, but I encourage all of you to, to be on the journey to get to know him. Okay, who he truly is, as presented in Scripture. Because that's where I think confidence in Jesus will really shape your life in a beautiful and meaningful way. And for all of us, as a community of Jesus followers, let us recommit ourselves to this lifelong journey of getting to know him and having our lives shaped by him. Amen. I invite our praise team to come on up as we spend a little moment in reflection.